1: Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Mark Sideritz author of How Things Are, an Introduction to Buddhist Metaphysics, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press as part of their Buddhist Philosophy for Philosophers series. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Mark.
0: And Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks for inviting me, and
1: happy to be here. Great. Glad, glad to get a chance to talk to you. Your book is an introduction to Buddhist metaphysics written specifically for philosophers. So uh, let's start with the kind of big picture. What's your book's main goal? And why did you think it was important to write now?
0: Okay, well, Jan Westerhoff is the editor of this series, Buddhist Philosophy for Philosophers. And I thought it was an absolutely wonderful idea. The basic motivation is to make the work of Indian analytic, classical Indian analytic philosophers, in, specifically in this case, in the Buddhist tradition, the Indian Buddhist tradition, make that work accessible to um, people today doing analytic philosophy in general, in this particular case, doing analytic metaphysics. And so, I um, volunteered to do this for Jan, and had great fun doing it. I've been doing this sort of thing for some time, although a lot of my work has been uh, more philologically oriented, more working through the Sanskrit texts, and trying to work out from the perspective of a philosopher exactly what's going on there. But at the same time, being someone who has at least one foot in the camp of contemporary philosophy, I wanted to be able to share what I was discovering in this tradition with my colleagues. And so that... Um, those of us who work out of the Western tradition could begin to expand our horizons, and perhaps the hope is profit from this, that is, get some uh, insights into how this other tradition approached issues we are interested in as analytic philosophers, and then um, uh, seeing things from a slightly different perspective maybe that induces a kind of intellectual queasiness initially because you're seeing things through two different lenses at the same time but that can also lead to um <clears throat> Possibly breakthrough insights into maybe we should approach this question in this slightly different way. So that that's the underlying motivation behind this particular work.
1: Yeah, you had a, a nice metaphor about sort of stereoscopic vision. There sounds like you're alluding to.
0: Yeah, yeah, the stereoscope. I I had one of these as a kid. Um, <clears throat> it's okay. It's it's like a pair of binoculars, you look through the two eyepieces, and in fact what you're looking at is um, two different slides of the same thing photographed from slightly different angles. And it can induce a certain kind of queasiness because you're. it looks distorted and that's weird. But eventually it your visual system kicks in properly, and you see it in 3D, and it's really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's a great metaphor for, for the kind of cross-cultural stuff that's going on here in the book. I, I liked that a lot. Uh, so let's back up for a moment and talk about you and how you became interested in Buddhist philosophy in general, and Buddhist metaphysics more specifically. How did you get into that?
0: okay back in high school this was back in the 1960s um i was into i got interested in zen buddhism and you know that that was part of the that zeitgeist and then i went off to college and wanted to study philosophy simply because i was interested in strange stuff and one of the things that my intro teacher had us read was Wittgenstein's Blue Book. And It occurred to me then that perhaps this was a better way of getting at this non-self stuff that these Zen Buddhists made such a big deal of. Because, of course, what I'd been reading was just popularizations of Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism doesn't have a whole lot of philosophical argumentation going on in it anyway. It's supposed to be all about practice. Um, but I knew that Buddhism had something to do with non-self, that that was central to the tradition. And what I was seeing in Wittgenstein's proto-behaviorist early (laughs) transition from Tractatus to the Investigations was, in fact, um, as something that resonated with me as someone who... And took this idea of non-self seriously. Perhaps there's something here. And I consequently got interested in, um, in pursuing contemporary analytic philosophy. And then I wound up doing a major at University of Hawaii, uh, which at the time was the only philosophy department that um, had offerings in both Western and Asian philosophy and never looked back, <laughs> so that's, that's how it all got started.
1: That's great. So let's let's dive into the book then. Your, your book is organized essentially topically um, after an initial introductory chapter, and I thought what we could do is talk through some of the main topics. Uh, we may not get to all of the chapters, there's a lot in the book, there's a lot, right? Um, so let's start with the introduction. What do you think is important for analytically trained philosophers to understand before they dive into reading your book? What do they need to know or or appreciate at the outset?
0: Okay, one important thing is that this Buddhist philosophy is part and parcel of a soterial tradition, a an institution that is built around this idea of helping individuals attain a better mode of existence, a better mode of life. Um, It is, quote unquote, spiritual. And... And for many people, that is, many philosophers in particular, that's been an impediment to appreciating what's going on in the Buddhist philosophical tradition or other classical Indian traditions as well, since they share this common uh, soteriological element. Um, I, want, I argue in the introduction that's something we need to get over. That in fact the um, analysis that Indian Indian Buddhist philosophers developed and deployed, although their depl- its deployment was in aid of this <clears throat> soterial uh, thrust, is nonetheless intrinsically interesting and important for those of us who care about. <clears throat> um the the use uh, uses of philosophical rationality so that's i guess the most important thing there are people who try to um guilt trip those of us doing western flaw well doing philosophy in the western style guilt trip them into expanding their horizons What I want to suggest is that um, it's not just a matter of, oh, you uh, filthy neo-colonialist neo-imperialist, that in fact, we're missing something interesting and important. And letting this the fact that <clears throat> buddhism is a spiritual tradition get in the way of appreciating that it's just plain silly
1: mm-hmm. okay well let, let's dive in then and see how this plays out in the book because you're you're drawing these connections and i think it comes out in the in the per- particularities of the argumentation, uh, what the, the Im- implications are for analytic philosophers and, and others. So let's start with the first chapter of your book, not surprisingly, starts with the idea of non-self, right? Uh, but then we also have non-self too. So why do we need two chapters on non-self? Isn't this a pretty simple idea? There is no self we're done, right? Why do you need two chapters in the book on this?
0: Okay, a Buddhist would say because the eye sense is so deeply rooted, we can easily dismiss the idea of a soul pellet I mean, and people have been doing this for a long, long time, making fun of Cartesians as thinking there is this and somehow immaterial thing lodged in the pineal gland or something. And that's easy to dismiss, to make fun of. But what's not so easy to dismiss is the sense of the cognizer as an ongoing project that has this particular perspective on the world, and it's private to me, blah, blah, blah. That's harder to get rid of. And what the Buddhist philosophical tradition attempts to do is get at the roots of that conviction and somehow rationally dissolve it, extirpate the I-sense and um, it's easy enough to prove that there could not be a soul pellet. <clears throat> the Buddha formulated a couple of arguments for that conclusion. The harder part comes with this idea that the eye sense is a useful fiction, it's something that it's um, <clears throat> useful for us to deploy in our interactions with others and with uh, the <clears throat> world. Um, And this is where the Buddhist tradition goes reductionist, uh, where it develops a kind of... uh, First, we get arguments for muriological nihilism, and then we get the analysis of the person as a whole made of these physical and mental parts. And then, uh, since we're muriological nihilists, Wholes like persons cannot be ultimately real. And then we get development of tools meant to um, <clears throat> explain and thereby explain away uh, all of these intuitions that um, fuel debates about um, the existence of an enduring subjectivity.
1: So that, just to- that's why
0: we need. <laughs> non-self one and non-self two.
1: So just to go back to muriological nihilism, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, what is muriological nihilism and how is that related to what you called reductionism?
0: Okay. And the muriological nihilist claims that no composite entities are real. And standard argument in the Buddhist tradition for that claim is there's no way of explaining the relation between whole and parts if both are real. We need the parts in our ontology to explain the facts, and so the whole must be a fiction. It is nonetheless a useful fiction. We need to be able to talk about these big things in our lives in order to get on with our lives. And so the Buddhist goes reductionist. They say, well, these things are part of our common sense ontology, but they are reducible to these smaller things, these impartite entities.
1: Gotcha. So just like a, a a team is really just the players. So to a a person is really just all of the composite parts, the teeth, the nails, the atoms, etc. Okay. So, um, so that's where we have non-self one and non-self two. Now, is this way of thinking of non-self the same for all Buddhists, or are there differences in how they deny the existence of a self?
0: Okay. All Buddhists accept that analysis. Um, <clears throat> Where they go from there, though, um, varies from one school to another. And now, by the way, we're talking about um, schools because you don't actually get Buddhists engaging in uh, the use of arguments and objections, reply, analysis, all of the standard tools, until some time after the death of the Buddha. As Buddhists um, develop various institutions, among other things, they start engaging with other Buddhists and with non-Indian non-Buddhists who also have their own uh, philosophical systems. And in that process, you get a number of schools developing that have uh, different ontologies. What I was just describing was um, the beginnings of the different schools that are lumped together under the term Abhidharma. The Theravada tradition, which most people know of as the Buddhism practiced in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka, that's one particular Abhidharma school. There were many other Abhidharma schools. They engage in this straightforward reductionist project and reduce persons to these things called dharmas which turn out interestingly to be tropes what we get there is an ontology that's a straightforward pure trope theory they're bundle theorists it's the bundling that gives us what we think of as substances but substances are in fact also useful fictions
1: and what is a, tro- a excuse me what is a trope then for just a to trope unpack
0: this. is the occurrence of a property particular <clears throat> at a particular place particular time th- there is this occurrence of hardness or red or sweetness or whatever
1: gotcha so there's no. Universal of hardness that is present in all of the the particular instances.
0: Right, Because these are also hardcore nominalists. They're muriological nihilists, but they're also um, <clears throat> um, momentarists. Nothing exists longer than a moment. The Buddha proclaimed that everything is impermanent. That was one of the, uh, the key claims he made. And the Buddhist tradition accepts that, but they go a step further and say, not only is everything impermanent, everything is actually, strictly speaking, momentary. Just lasts an instant, then it goes out of existence. So, of course, there can't be universals.
1: Right. So we, we'll uh, let's show that for just a second. We've got we've got causation. We've got time. We've got nominals. We've got a lot a lot of things going on, and and we won't get to all of it. I'm sure. But um, back to the idea of these different schools of thought. Uh, one of the ones that you mentioned early on in connection with non-self is the Pudgulavadins or the personalists, uh, and and it seems like one natural move would be to say, well, there's no selves, but we've got persons in some sense. Um, can you tell us about the these personalists? Um, is this something Buddhists can do? Could we have persons and not selves? Uh, and in what sense?
0: There are, in fact, lots of, today, there are lots of neo-personalists, people who like Buddhism for one reason or another, but are unwilling to go down that straightforward reductionist road. And so they wind up thinking, well, these personalists, these Puglavadans, they were called, they must have had something right. But in fact, I think there's a very simple and straightforward argument against that, which is how what exactly is the relation between this whole the person that these people claim exists and the parts the dharmas that make it up the physical and mental elements that out of which persons are supposedly composed and what the personalists say in response to that question is oh well in fact They're not, the person is not identical with the elements, but it's not distinct either. In fact, there's nothing you can say about the relation between whole and parts in this particular case. Now, they will agree that other composite objects are just fictions, but when it comes to the person, that's special. And the... Response to that claim on the part of virtually, I mean, okay, the, the personalists were, were kind of heterodox, and they, in, in fact, go out of existence um, relatively early in the, the development of Indian Buddhist philosophy. Um and the reason I think they basically go away is there's a killer argument against that. And it's the argument that analytic philosophers think of as the Evans argument, the argument against um, um, indeterminate identity. People try to solve sorority's difficulties by saying that there's this indeterminate identity relation that's going to fix all the troubles that, the logical problems that arise. The Evans argument, and actually it was anticipated about, um, oh, uh, 13, 14 centuries earlier by this philosopher Shantarakshita. The argument basically says, well, look, um, uh, take this one thing that is supposedly indeterminate, it's indeterminate with respect to identity distinctness um, to, okay, take the person as something supposedly real and then take my left fingertip. And it's indeterminate whether the person is identical with or distinct from that fingertip. But now that means that the person has this property of indeterminate indeterminacy with respect to identity distinctness, that fingertip. But now this fingertip, my left fing- fingertip, is distinctly, <laughs> is determinately distinct from my right fingertip. So, my left fingertip has a property that the person does not have. Consequently, they must be distinct. I mean, that's the Evans argument. And that rules out the person as neither identical with nor distinct from. Real, but neither identical with nor distinct from.
1: And <clears throat> <clears throat> the parts... And this is a sort of a synchronic argument about the, the person at a time. Um, what about diachronically? Um, one way of getting persons is something like, you know, weird little time worms, right? That what I am is from birth to death or something like that. Um, do we see anything uh, in that direction in, in Buddhist philosophy?
0: Yeah. The what we think of as a person diachronically is actually a causal series. And a causal series being a series, being made up of distinct, discrete elements from one moment to the next is likewise a conceptual fiction. Mereological nihilism kicks in once again. And so the series is useful, and we can explain its utility quite simply, I mean, what's prudential rationality all about? It's about trying to prevent bad things from happening in the future of this series. And since preventing bad things is always a good idea, um, it's useful to have that idea kicking around of the person as an ongoing project.
1: And this is also related, as you point out, to the soteriological project of Buddhism, that there's some sort of uh, utility in this idea of a series in terms of making um, goals, in terms of uh, preventing suffering, addressing these causes of suffering. Is that correct?
0: Um, It's actually a little bit more complicated than that insofar as uh, the basic idea is What we're aiming at is preventing bad stuff from happening. And that's what we're actually all about. Whose good stuff, bad stuff? Whose good stuff are we promoting? Bad stuff are we trying to prevent? Well, there not being any persons, no ones. The... A useful fiction as a person is built around one way of trying to achieve a uh, minimizing overall suffering, but it's something that also gets in the way of uh, preventing suffering because it locks us into this idea of a self, of a person, me, and then uh, that leads to existential suffering which is in fact what the Buddhist project is meant to dispel. That's what it's really all about.
1: So let's return to the argument you just sketched, which is about the, the Evans argument and determinant, indeterminacy, et cetera. You, you were giving some binaries that, that it seemed like things had to, to either be one way or another, but here's something that I've, I've heard uh, remarked on. Um, some Buddhists, at least, don't hold to the laws of classical logic, like the law of the excluded middle. So m- maybe not the personalists historically, but um, couldn't we say that look, there's a Buddhist view on which we just give up the laws of classical logic and and we allow for um, you know there to be something other than just uh, truth or falsity.
0: Um, you may have heard that, but not from any classical Indian Buddhist. In fact. <clears throat> Okay, we were talking earlier about schools of Buddhism and uh, been talking so far primarily about the Abhidharma schools. But then there are Mahayana schools, two important ones, Madhyamaka and Yogacara. Now, Madhyamaka is the school that go, that people... Today, most often identify with this idea that, well, couldn't there be? Couldn't these people have accepted the possibility of true contradictions? Couldn't they just have thrown the principle of non-contradiction overboard? And the answer to that is no. There's clear textual evidence. I mean Chandrakirti, who is perhaps the wildest of the Indian Majamikas, the one who goes furthest in this pro- this global anti-realist project. He says <clears throat> quite explicitly, "We do not talk to people who utter contradictions; they are crazy." So. <laughs> no they nowadays we would characterize the indian buddhist tradition uniformly as logically conservative they don't expect they don't accept any of the, uh, the so-called deviant logics.
1: And, and this is important in your characterization of their arguments because many of the arguments, these reductios and, and other strategies, require there to be a contradiction that gets rejected, as, as I understand it. Um, so how do how do we get this idea then that they are holding to something like non-classical logic? Where does this come from? And how how would you explain it to people that that, that they're doing something else?
0: Okay. Um, See, it's easy enough to see how uh, one would be tempted to interpret someone like Chandrakirti that way, insofar as all he ever actually does is show that his opponent's views lead to contradiction. And then the question naturally arises, okay, this view, that view, this other view, they're all false. What are we supposed to believe? And it looks like there isn't any room left uh, for some positive view. But surely he was trying to convince us of something, so perhaps it's something that is somehow beyond uh, the categories of logic. But the way I see... Madhyamakas in general, I think what they're actually trying to do is induce a kind of um, <clears throat> metaphysical quietism. They're trying to get us to stop doing metaphysics. Now, this is tricky because, <clears throat> I mean, I've already indicated, I think there's a lot of philosophical work involved in the overall Buddhist project, that Buddhist practice does centrally involve working through these arguments, engaging in rational analysis, and so what's the point then if the ultimate goal is metaphysical quietism, just simply stopping doing metaphysics? Well. I think the answer to this might be that the Buddhist project of overcoming suffering, overcoming existential suffering, the suffering that's so thoroughly, deeply implicated in this notion of there being a me, this project, my life, um, that that… Overcoming existential suffering does require us to engage in philosophy, to do metaphysics, and to work through, for instance, the meriological nihilism, how reduction explains, can be used to answer all the standard objections to a non-self view, etc., etc. You have to do that in order to make some progress. But there is nonetheless a problem with that project, the straightforwardly philosophical metaphysical project, insofar as metaphysicians are inclined to engage in one particularly telling gesture. They pound the table. This is how things truly are. And that gesture is revealing insofar as what it suggests is, I'm right and you're wrong. And that's a subtle reaffirmation of the sense of a me. And because it's so subtle, it can be very difficult to extirpate. But it's something that a Buddhist practitioner must at some point or other give up. And so what that suggests is that this Majamaka stuff comes at the very end of the Buddhist path, the path to the cessation of suffering.
1: So l- let me throw something out that just uh, connects a little bit to what you said in your biography introduction about Wittgenstein. Does this at all uh, have any affinities to Wittgenstein's ladder, the idea of sort of uh, – tossing away the ladder and reaching the ineffable or is that an is that an over overwrought uh, comparison
0: okay reaching for the ineffable that is um, certainly not something a maika would accept um, and tossing away the ladder sure um, <clears throat> philosophy is a useful tool but if it helps you get where you want to go, you might reach a point where you have to kick it back down and maybe somebody else can use it then.
1: Right. So this goes back to the idea of useful conceptual fictions and useful tools that that's the focus here. L- let, let me pick up on something else that you had just mentioned. You used the term global anti-realism. So can you explain what that is and uh, which Buddhists are global anti-realists and in what sense?
0: Okay. Yeah. All Buddhists are anti-realists of one, in one <clears throat> respect or another. They're all anti-realists about self. And as muriological mur- nihilist is anti-realist about any composite object, including persons, but all sorts of other things as well. Um, and then you've got this other Mahayana school, Yogacara, which is external world anti-realists. They are idealists like Barclay, they're just not subjective idealists, they're subjectless idealists. That's a hard road to hoe, but nonetheless, that's where they go. Majemicas go furthest of all, though. They claim that the very idea of an ultimate ontology makes no sense. An ultimate ontology would have to consist of things that bear their natures intrinsically, and in fact would be just simple occurrences of tropes, momentary tropes. But... Madhyamaka's argue, starting with Nagarjuna, that that if we actually work through what that idea entails, it turns out it does not make any sense. And that is, in fact, part of their project of um, getting us to a a (laughs) metaphysic, quieting the metaphysical urgings that um, will be Inculcated through doing the practice of philosophy, important to a Buddhist path, but has to be um, <clears throat> put aside at a certain point.
1: And so, this is so. Let's go to Nagarjuna. Then he argues that everything is empty of intrinsic nature. And so, what is this emptiness then consist in? And what are what are some of his arguments for that? Why should we believe this claim?
0: Okay, what does emptiness consist in? That makes it sound like his claim, all things are empty, is in fact a metaphysical claim. And in fact, I mean, the key move that Majamakas make is to say, not only are all the things that all these other philosophers think are ultimately real— part of our ultimate, our final ontology. Not only are they devoid of intrinsic nature, and so, by definition, not ultimately real, emptiness as something that's true of all of those supposed ultimate reals is equally empty, which is to say the very idea of an ultimate ontology makes no sense. And so don't ask does uh, do you do you, my jimikas, mean that this is the final nature of how things truly are? Everything is empty. Well, no. Um, okay, so what back back to your question though, I haven't I haven't answered I haven't actually asked answered your question.
1: So, how, what's an argument then for oh, oh, yeah. of the okay. claims? Yeah,
0: okay, um the buddhist reductionist project turns centrally on causation there have to be causal relations between among these ultimate reals And one move that Nagarjuna makes early on in his central work, Mula Majam Kakarika is to argue that the causal relation makes no sense, understood as a relation among things with intrinsic nature, things that are ultimately real. Um, One way of understanding a central argument is Uh, Cause and effect are conceptually interdependent. Something can't be a cause unless it is thought of as what produces this effect. Likewise, something can't be an effect unless it's uh, thought of as um, originating from this particular set of causes and conditions. And those properties cannot be intrinsic to those entities. Those are relational properties. Those are extrinsic, and so this could could not it could not be ultimately true that this thing causes that thing. Um, Nagarjuna also uses the argument of the three times: uh, when the cause exists, the effect does not yet exist. So how can it be said to be a cause? When the effect exists, the cause no longer exists. So how can this be called an effect? And the temptation is to suppose that there is a time when the effect is coming into existence, at which time the cause does exist. But uh, guess what? There is no such third time. Either the cause does exist or it does not. Either the effect does exist or it does not. And this is the advantage of being a mereological nihilist. If you, if the your only entities are simples, then this idea of a process of coming into existence simply makes no sense.
1: You mentioned or you talked about this argument um, as the argument of the three times. This uh, is a an argument that is under discussion sort of beyond just Buddhism, right? In the sense that this is, uh, there's other thinkers other than Buddhists that are discussing causation and what exists over time. So, one of the things you do in your book, too, is you talk about some of these non Buddhist opponents like Nyaya or Samkhya. Um, maybe just for the sake of completeness a little bit here, could you sketch out for our listeners what some of the non Buddhists were saying at the time about? causation. I think it might give them a little bit more of a picture of the opposing views. Yeah.
0: Okay. The, um, the classical Indian discussion of causation is built around this dichotomy. Either you believe that the effect already exists in its cause, that the appearance of the effect is just a transformation of the cause, or you think cause and effect are distinct existence. And when the, the uh, cause exists, the effect does not yet exist. Um, the problem with the first one, according to all Buddhists, is... Well, in that case, why do you need to do anything if the, the effect already exists? If, for instance, there's already heat in that uh, that log, why do you need to split the log and then ignite it in order to get warmth, to get fire? The second view, the view that uh, cause and effect are distinct, and uh, first the cause and then the effect, um, That's the standard Buddhist view, and that's the one that Nagarjuna sets out to refute in in the very beginning of his uh, central work, Mulamajamaka
1: Good. So, and the the first view that you were mentioning there was a view from uh, Samkhya philosophers that you talk talk about, and Nyaya philosophers are going to reject that view, uh, but at the same time, they… they have some other commitments that Buddhists are, are are going to find contentious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Nyaya has a set of categories. It's actually a much better system of categories than what Aristotle came up with. (laughs) I mean, we all know Aristotle's (laughs) list of categories is weird. I mean, posture, get off it. Makes no sense. um, Nyaya, well, actually, Vaisheshika is where the system of categories, but Nyaya and Vaisheshika are really just one system under two names. Um, their system of categories includes substances and also um, uh, qualities as tropes actions which actually turn out to be tropes as well um and then a bunch of others that do important work in making sense of the ways in which we ordinarily speak you could think of the nyayakas as the um and descriptive metaphysicians of classical indian philosophy whereas the buddhists are the um, um what was Strassen's term? Um, The revisionary metaphysicians. They take common sense and say, well, yeah, this works for us, but we can explain why it works for us without this huge inflated ontology that Nyaya and, for that matter, Sankhya depend on.
1: Good. Good. Thank you for fleshing that out a little bit. While we're talking about history a bit, you have a chapter also on causation that goes into some of the the history where you talk about this idea of a progressive de-homuncularizing of conditionality a great term but what does it mean uh and maybe could you just give us an example of like an early approach and a later approach what's what's this process of de-homuncularizing that you're talking about
0: okay our common sense idea of causation um involves this idea of the cause producing an effect. And when we think of it that way, we think of it in, um, <clears throat> in terms familiar from our actions in our agency in the world, making something, putting something together transforming this material so that it uh, satisfies our needs. And this seems to be more or less the idea of causation that was common among the earliest Indian, classical Indian philosophers and that then develop into these um, eminentists versus or inherentists like Sankhya and these, you no know, cause and effect are distinct, but there's still this idea of there being some sort of producing, some sort of activity. And a lot of this is actually um, generated by the fact that all of these philosophers accept a certain kind of grammatical analysis that's dictated by the structure of Sanskrit. Uh, Which in which a verb requires uh, something in the nominative case, which is going to be the agent, and uh, something in the accusative case, which is going to be the target of the agent's activity, and then something in the instrumental case, which is going to be whatever the agent uses to bring about this change in the target, and so on and so forth the case structure of uh, Sanskrit language more or less dictates this idea of causation as a kind of producing that's going to involve a number of different factors bringing about this change in the target, the object. And uh, that's obviously built around a syntax that was, in fact, initially developed as a way to enable human agents to talk about their actions. And so there's already built into this idea of a change that, in fact, it involves agency. And... What I think you can trace in the development of views about causation from early Abhidharma through Dharmakirti, who finally comes up with an analysis of causation that <clears throat> seems to work fairly well, uh, what you see is a process of trying to take out elements of <clears throat> persons as agents, causation as involving something that's performing this activity. What you wind up with is pretty much the view of the Humean mosaic. You've got distribution of trope occurrences across the human mosaic of uh, uh, space-time points. And then you've got relations of invariable succession. And that's all there is to causation. whenever this sort of thing occurs, that sort of thing occurs. No counterfactuals here. And so no room for this idea of necessary connection to get uh smuggled into our conception of causation i think is actually quite (laughs) quite cool
1: you just started talking a bit about philosophy of language and it sort of seems like Any topic in Sanskrit language philosophy, you scratch the surface and you get philosophy of language in there there somewhere, right? Um, And so one place that this happens in your book is in your discussion of nominalism, uh, the idea that there's no real universals. Uh, We talked a little bit about why Buddhists reject universals earlier. Um, So maybe you can explain why this is important for thinking about language and the big picture, I guess, if we don't have universals, how do we explain our ability to talk about general features of the world? What, how do they do this?
0: Okay. The If you want the, the historical trajectory here, it's <clears throat> the, the Buddhist philosophers realize early on they can't be realists about universals. They have to be nominalists. But what you get initially is a kind of ostrich nominalism. They think that they can, in fact, talk about, um, they can use resemblances to explain how we get these basic concepts like our color concepts. And it's not until later on that they realize you can't do that. Because what is it that generates our similarity space? Well, it's got to be conceptualization of some sort if there are no universals. Russell is sometimes credited with having seen that and called out this attempt at being a resemblance nominalist, this conceptualism stuff. But in fact, it was a Sankhya philosopher who first saw that. Who saw that <clears throat> resemblances are always resemblances with respect to a particular kind. So the kinds are <clears throat> kind of sort of smuggled in through a back door if you try to go that route. So the the upshot, and you don't get this until <clears throat> fairly late in, well, later in the tradition with uh, a certain development in the Yogacara school with Dignag and Dharmakirti you get this thing called (coughs) apoha, which is their attempt to be radical nominalists. The meaning of the word cow is not non-cow. Now, (coughs) that sounds like it shouldn't get you around commitment to universals. But somehow or other, they think it can. And... I've thought about this for many years. I've played around with it in many different ways. The best way I can make sense of it is in terms of this idea of there being two distinct kinds of negation involved in that not non cow." One of which is <laughs> involves commitment, the other is commitmentless. And when you put those two kinds of negation together, it turns out, you can go from a particular to a class. And this is something that actually was explicitly affirmed by certain members of the Nyaya school, not Buddhists, but Nyayakas. And now that for Nyaya was heresy, The Buddhists weren't around by then, by the time that Mathura Nath came up with this idea. Um, The Buddhists had basically been kicked out of India at that point. But the fact that some Nayayakas came up with ideas suggests to me that this, this may at least have been in the back of the heads of Dignag and Dharmakirti, or at least Dharmakirti as he developed Ignaga's idea of apoha, of of the exclusion of the other. Now, there's another move that Dharmakirti does make explicitly, which is to explain our sense of resemblance in terms of efficaciousness. Uh, He uses the example of these three different plants, each of which functions as an antipyretic. It's kind of like aspirin and acetaminophen and ibuprofen all reduce fever, okay? So, because they all work to prevent fever, we think of them as forming a class, but that's only relative to our interests, our needs. And so that's, we shouldn't be afraid when we think of them as forming this anti pyretic class, we shouldn't be afraid that we're somehow committed to a real universal, that they all share in common, because it's so clearly something that we have imposed on them. And so that's that's one move that kind of sort of mitigates the um, the bafflement that comes with this not non cow move, but there's still this difficulty that efficacy, uh, the fact that each of these different plants will cure a fever, requires causation, and doesn't causation in turn require kinds. Because causal laws are what? They're laws about kinds. I mean, invariable succession of this sort of thing by that sort of thing. So it's not clear it actually works, but it's nonetheless fun to play around with.
1: (laughs) So we're, we're getting close to time here, but I have one more question th- about the Buddhist philosophers you were just mentioning, uh, who are Yogacara philosophers. You mentioned yogachara, Uh, and this is a tradition that you said is uh, idealist. So metaphysics isn't just about the external world. It's also about our internal life, mental states, consciousness, and things like this. So could you just, in 30 seconds or less, Yogachara no, um, uh, who are Yogacara Buddhists and what kind of idealism do they have? You said it's subjectless. <laughs>
0: subjectless idealism. Yeah.
1: What's like going Barclay on
0: there? only. See, Barclay's big mistake was throwing spirit, what he calls spirit, into the mix. That, at least from the, the Yogacara perspective, he Barclay agrees. He has no idea what spirit is, but nonetheless, he thinks we have to suppose it exists. Um, <laughs> The charans don't go down that path because obviously that would be positing a self. Um, their arguments against external world, against anything existing in the external world, are uh, very simple. They're infant divisibility arguments. We can, okay, actually there are two arguments. Number one, we can explain all the facts about uh, our sense experience without supposing that those experiences are caused by anything external to the mental stream. And number two, trying to explain how physical things could cause these appearances, cause these experiences, gets you into the problem of infinite divisibility. If the world is made up of, if the external world is made up of composites of atoms, how, when, because th- those are our best guess of what the simples, the physical simples, would be like, how can putting more and more atoms together ever give you something big enough to see, big enough to touch? And that's the basic problem. And obviously if the atoms have no size, then no matter how many you add, if they're all touching, then, um you never get anything big and if they have if each atom has some size then it isn't really an atom because an atom is supposed to be indivisible not just physically unsplittable but in fact <laughs> conceptually indivisible
1: so then There's no external world composed of atoms. Um, What is sense experience in that case? What is that composed of?
0: It's the ripening of karmic seeds. You see, whenever we do something, whenever we even think about doing something, we want to do something, that causes the occurrence of a karmic seed, which will in time, under the right circumstances, ripen in the form of an experience. And that's all there is (laughs) Mm.
1: i guess i'm a little worried how this isn't smuggling spirit or something something else in there
0: it's just a causal
1: series of in
0: this case mental tropes
1: mental tropes okay so the answer is that they're mental tropes uh that are that are occurring in succession
0: and each causing a set of successor tropes blah 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 the series goes on
1: etc okay and so it's just all we have is that but there's no internal external division that's in any way helpful that's
0: yeah and in fact the point of going idealist for these Buddhists is, this is an interesting way of dissolving the subject-object dichotomy. It's not a way of affirming the spirit as Barclay would have it. It's rather, I mean, think of Kant's refutation of Barclay, you can't have inside without outside. The Yogacarana agrees, but they say, look, you don't have an outside, so therefore you don't have an inside either. So it's subjectless.
1: All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good stopping point, uh, starting with non-self to, and ending with subjectlessness. Um, for more, people will need to pick up the book. There's there's a lot in there. Uh, what are you working on right now, now that this book has been, been published?
0: Okay, I'm doing something right now that's going to send a lot of... <clears throat> people today who identify as Buddhists, a lot of Western Buddhists, around the bend. Because what I'm trying to work out is whether there could be a Buddhist physicalism. Um, None of the classical Indian Buddhists were physicalists. They were all either dualist or idealist. The arguments that they developed against physicalism, because there were among classical Indian philosophers, there was a school of physicalism. Um, the arguments they worked out against physicalism are actually pretty bad, they don't work. The basic fear seems to have been, and this this seems to have been um <clears throat> the principal motivation behind their rejection of physicalism. If you're a physicalist, then you probably think karma and rebirth is a bunch of hooey, makes absolutely no sense. And then doesn't that devolve into um just uh, enjoy this life and the pleasures thereof. And you wind up ignoring <coughs> morality and doing all sorts of evil, nasty things. Now, that too, I think, is a pretty bad reason to reject physicalism. But in any event, we today have lots and lots of evidence <coughs> that looks like it supports physicalism. So uh, can a Buddhist live with that? And what I'm trying to do is work out what that might look like, bringing in some stuff from um, in cognitive psychology, from neuroscience, and so on and so forth. Great. So having a lot of fun.
1: It sounds like it. Well, we'll look forward to seeing the book when it comes out, maybe chatting with you about it again. And uh, thanks for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. It was fun.